Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome. It's Jude Gold here with No Guitar Is Safe, episode 28. Today's guest, the great Charlie Hunter. I hope you're digging what you're hearing. This is an exclusive here. We are hearing sneak previews of his new album coming out July 22nd. The name of the album is based on a It literally is a Mike Tyson quote called Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Again, it comes out on July 22nd. And of course, man, there's always such great musicians that surround Charlie at all times because he's such a great jazz player, groove player, funk player, and blues player. This album is kind of focusing a little more on his blues and funk influences. Yeah, no overdubs on this record. This was uh, recorded entirely live in a studio in Hudson, New York. Charlie was one of those guys that impressed me mightily back in the day when we were all very young and he's like, I'm moving to New York and he never came back. Yeah, I had the pleasure of taking lessons from Charlie right after high school. He was just a couple of years ahead of me in high school, but he was teaching at Subway Guitars in Berkeley. And I was like, man, I got to take advantage of this opportunity. It was awesome taking from Charlie. Such a um, dedicated musician, dedicated to every aspect of music, the harmony, the groove, the tone. Love me some Charlie Hunter. He's so respected everywhere. He tours constantly. In fact, Charlie's on the road right now. You can see him in New York City, June 21st, 22nd, 23rd. You can see him at the Ottawa Jazz Festival on um, June 29th, and also Montreal Jazz Fest on July 1st, Brooklyn Bowl, July 15th. Wanted to get that in there before I forgot, because you just if you haven't seen Charlie, well, check it out. Let's listen to a little bit more. Now, Charlie always, always is surrounded by just the most stellar musicians. And on this record, he's got Kirk Nufke on cornet. Hope I said that last name right. And he's got Bobby Previtt on drums. I've seen Charlie play with Bobby before. Man, they just have such a great chemistry and teamwork happening. I also saw him with the bone player you're hearing, Curtis Folks. Such a rich ensemble. Now, if you're wondering who's playing bass, you probably haven't seen Charlie perform before because he's pioneered this thing where, you know, he plays the bass line and the guitar parts at the same time. He plays a seven-string guitar with big fan frets, so the low strings are actually bass strings. The lowest three strings are long scale, maybe 28 or more inches in scale, so he can get that fat bass tone with some really true bass tension and those go to a bass amp and then the higher strings go to a guitar amp it's funky it's in stereo and he's pioneered this thing and he's just broke so much ice and tore down so many walls to bring this style to you he will always be a huge hero of mine because well he's created this new sound and i just man 
the guitar players I respect the most are the ones that I just hear their sound and recognize them instantly. This album is focusing more on his, uh, you know, R&B, funk, and blues kind of influences, but Charlie is so prolific, so check out all his other records if you haven't yet. He's got records in every style. His guitars are made by Jeff Trugo or Trow. I'm not sure how to say it, but you should go to Jeff's site to check out Charlie's really awesome, one-of-a-kind fan fretboard guitars. TrowGuitars.com. You know, I'm just going to spell it for you here. T-R-A-U-G-O-T-T guitars, one word, dot com. You got to do it. I remember when Charlie was playing Novak's guitars, built by Ralph Novak, who really was one of the pioneers of the fan fretboard guitars, which uh, make Charlie's sound happen so well. And funnily enough, Ralph sold me my first guitar when I was just like nine years old. And uh, I'll never forget that day. My mom took me there and we came out with a guitar. <laughs> so, yes, let's get in the copter, man. It's time to fly over to Charlie's Pad. You know, I did this when I was in New York at a Manhattan hotel. Played a gig with Jefferson Starship in the nearby BB Kings. And I was like, man, this is it. I'm finally going to get to hang with Charlie. It was still like late March, early April. There's a chill in the air. And we're going to fly right over to... Penn Station, where then I had to get on a train. Had to get on New Jersey Transit. Charlie lives just across the Hudson. And I go over to his cool little garage in the back with the musical instruments and the drum set. And we had a great hang. I hope you enjoy it. We talk about a lot of stuff. Charlie's lessons with Joe Satriani on up to how he built his career. The end of the thing, we get into some serious talk about groove. And I love what Charlie has to say about groove. He is a groove apotamus. All right, let's go. Thank you. 
Charlie Hunter in the house. Ah. Actually, I'm in your house. You're in my, my garage. This is cool, man. The man cave, the guitar cave <laughs> here. And uh, man, I just realized that over the past 20 years, I haven't really got to sit in front of you and watch you play again since like you gave me guitar lessons <laughs> back in the Dude, day. Dude, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it was. It seems like yesterday, but I've seen you perform so many times on big stages since then and small stages. Little ones, yeah, probably mostly. <laughs> well, I remember you uh, rocked the Oakland Stadium too with U2 opening. That right. We'll get to that. Oh, wow, wow. But I love that 12-bar blues you're playing. Oh, like, thanks. Uh, I, I don't I usually have a guitar in these things, but you're kind of like a one-stop shopping for all groove and melody and funk. So, <laughs> one so stop, had, it's like a one-stop dollar store, but it's a dollar store. It's all everything is for a dollar. You know, that's great. Well, yeah, cool, man. It's like a cruise ship buffet. It looks amazing, but then you eat and you're still hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That means there's always room for more. <laughs> Uh, man, it's, it's great to be. And I almost started singing because I didn't have a guitar because the blues was just... Was, oh, shoot. I love, love how you leave so much room. Good. Oh, place. thanks. Well, I have to because I have to edit everything, you know, and um, ultimately it's all about the time and the rhythm. And, and uh, you know, early on, I, I definitely tried to, to play too much because that's what we do, right? You know, uh, but... But, you know, as time went on, I played a lot more drums, got more into the counterpoint and more into gestures as opposed to um, flurries and stuff, which I still like to hear other people do that. It just doesn't work on my instrument, really. You know, it's not a judgment thing. It's just like, what does this do that I can't do on other instruments because all the, the stuff on the other instruments is so damn hard on this instrument, you know? Well, it's cool. You're right. It kind of, uh, it forces you to play things that fit well together and have leave a lot of space between the two voices yeah definitely i mean you definitely um it it doesn't get crowded you know what i mean in terms of you know you're not gonna but it's a very different um uh, aesthetic obviously than you know having a bass player and a guitar player or even an organ it's it's its own thing and you know, I'm still developing it. I mean, you know, I'm almost I'm 49 years old. And, you know, most of my compatriots, you know, people I came up with, they just went to the front of the class so fast. Incredible musicians. And, and um, you know, because there was already like a pedagogy for their instrument. And, and if you're a great musician, you're just going to nail that, you know. Whereas with me, I'm like, okay... Uh, this is gonna take a long time, you know. So I feel like I'm I'm at the point they were 25 years ago, you know. Well, you've evolved, like you said, your own style, your own instrument, and that you're right. You've, so that's a lot of ice to break through. But yeah, to the yeah. outside, and it's out cold and lonely. <laughs> <laughs> From the outside, though, it looks like you jumped to the head of the class too. So, so oh wow, you know, well, I think everybody kind of has that feeling that maybe you're feeling. I think that I think if if you don't, then you're not gonna last very long. Just because isn't the whole reason we do this for really to be a part of something that you know you're just a very small part in the bigger music picture, and ultimately you're just trying to get as good as you can, and you're working every single day. Um, something to wake up for to do. So you feel like you don't only, you don't want to let your teachers and your forebears down. You don't want to let your um, peers down. And you don't want to let the people who listen to you 
in the future down, the people who might learn whatever you've done down. So, you know, I mean, regardless, you don't make a penny at this, and most times we don't make a penny. You still are dedicated to the, to the you know, being part of this larger kind of, you know, global, historical kind of musical community, and that is uh, something that every day you, you kind of earn your membership in, you know? Yeah, I mean, we're driven for yeah. that. If you're a true musician, it's like you're... You're not. You can't do anything else, even if there's every smart reason to. Yeah, yeah. And there is no. If you to, if you chose to do this, <laughs> no one chooses to do that. You have to do this because it's the most absurd choice anyone could ever make. You know. But you've done so much stuff all over the world in 17 albums now. You oh wow! Okay. I mean, or something. Probably more. I've, I don't think everything was listed on the last thing that I looked at. And you have a new record out. Charlie Hunter Trio. Right, yeah. And I'm working on another one. As we speak, in a couple of days, I'm recording an- another one. So. Oh, yeah. What's that, what's that one going to be Well, like? it's um, with um, Bobby Previtt on drums, Curtis Folks on trombone, and uh, a guy named Kirk Knufke on cornet. Sweet. Um, and it is essentially going to be my idea of a, a blues record. You know what I mean? Is that why you got in the blues mode there at the beginning? Or I don't just... know. Yeah, I think I've really been. I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we both came up in the Bay Area. And, you know, all the our parents' generation. That I mean, my mom, that was what she was into. And so that's what was on around the house. Much to my total embarrassment, whenever friends came over, there'd be like Lead Belly or Mississippi John Hurt on. And it was so embarrassing. What did you want to be on? What would you have rather Whatever she would play? Whatever crap stuff i was listening i mean you know when you're a teenager you just you have your your view on reality is is incredibly hyper focused towards one specific and ultimately irrelevant thing but when you're that age that's all that matters you know so um but you know i i realized as i as i you know was was spent so much time going through that you know the more jazz oriented kind of things which i think is there's really no better way to learn in terms of rhythm harmony melody learning all that stuff i just don't know if there's a better way to really in terms of of a departure point um but then i realized that well wait a minute the technically and the feel and what what i'm feeling is what do i really like like what is this instrument really from you know and and you know the technique wise which you know some people really like to talk a lot about technique and some people really don't but it's a means to an end right ultimately and i i bit off this something bigger than i can chew a lot of the time and and i you know i'm constantly trying to figure out the technique you know and so my attitude early on was like well you know i I, i'm up there like uh, chops are at a premium you know i need to go up there and play all my like you know was my see a fast lick And I was like, that that doesn't sound too good. Like, okay, it's frantic. There's licks going all over the place. But to me, what I want, what eventually I se- I'm, I'm settling on is this idea of the drum set on the instrument and the idea of, of all of the groundbreaking stuff those great country blues guitar players did. Um, technically, guys like Blind Blake and Mississippi John Hurt, Robert Johnson, um, all of these great guitar players, you know, and then when I, when I thought, well, okay, I can still think about things in terms of a bass line, you know, you can, you can have, even music that isn't blues-based, it's still the same concept, but let's just say you, you have like a, just a simple like... Right, I mean, that's like a... 
right. I mean, that's like a kind of like an organ. And you're trying to keep it in there. And then let's say, but let's say you want to do something else. Right? I'm still thinking in terms of like, I'm still thinking in terms of like, well, this really, all this is, is just updated Blind Blake. Really? Because while the... Right? Right? Totally, man. You know it's what fun I mean? to actually to literally do that in a song, go back and forth between the old school shuffle and the well, James Brown funk. Exactly, like but to me, it's like it's all it's all when I clicked into that idea of oh, okay, well, wait a minute, that technical stuff like that those old blues guys were doing, that's really I've been overcomplicating things, and if you have a good groove going. You need, I mean, I feel like you need less and less harmonic and melodic information. And, and, and a lot of times, the more of that stuff you put in there, just, it, it starts to get overladen, you know? Like, when you think about Cuban music, like the folkloric stuff, even even like stuff, you know, when it came to New York, they call it salsa music, you know, the New Yorkian stuff. That stuff, those, those changes are usually pretty straightforward, and the majority of the narrative is happening in the percussion section, in the singing, all of this interplay, you know. Um, it's the funkiest fucking music man. it really is in a lot of ways you know if you see the band those bands are every single instrument's happening like in a different space you can hear everything yeah 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 and it's because they're all so it took me a really long time to understand and i don't even think i'm like any uh, understand but to at least understand the gist of what's going on you know with that music when you know it was i was listening to los muniquitos de matanzas you know and i was like i was like yeah this is dope but in my mind i was like man i i have no idea wh- who's one am i listening to now you know and then i saw them play and they had the dancers and then it w- all clicked into place i was like aha i see that's what that is all about you know they're playing like the the uh, quinto player is dealing with what the lead dancer is doing and everyone is keeping the thing and it's just like then it, you, it gives you that feeling you know well you know I, I have to ask you to play some of that stuff now i remember we did something on montuno's once Oh God! It's the funkiest shit that people don't necessarily realize how funky. Oh yeah, uh, and I'm not very on good guitar. at. I mean, what something like? Thank you. 
the groove again. You know, something like that. But I'm not a I'm not an expert. I am an I am an amateur. And there's like major key ones. I think you were showing me too. Or sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, I learned a bunch of. Uh, you know what I mean? Then there's, yeah. there's always that. Yeah. And then you, oops, and then you can get, even get into a groove like like a more calypso-y kind of groove, you know, like um. Ah, hands are cold. Stuff, you know? like yeah. Great dance music. Yeah, you know, and ultimately what I wanted to try to do was like, okay, you know what? Such a big premium is put on, you know, really like shredding kind of guitar playing and and um and that's a thing, you know, and, and I have a lot of uh great friends that that's their pursuit, you know, and I think it's a totally valid pursuit. But the problem I had and what I was up against was that, you know, even in the kind of jazz world, which, you know, I mean, guys like you would say, oh, yeah, he's a jazz guy. And all my jazz friends would say, he's not a jazz guy. I, you know? I wouldn't, I, you know, I would, all, the only word that comes to my mind is a groove. Oh, thank you. You're that's that's the highest compliment. <laughs> that's what I'm after, you know? But, you know, what I realized is, is such a high um, premium was put on that when I was coming up that it kind of messed my head up, you know, for really the beauty of just trying to deal with a simple... Um, movement a groove grooving kind of movement you know and and um since i've locked into that attitude of trying to get better at that i, I mean i come in the shed and i try to figure out different fingerings for things even something as simple some of the fingerings that like end up being super counterintuitive like just recently let's say like this key like my, my instrument is a e-flat transposing instrument so that's lowest string is a g it's not an e right so right. a lot of the keys of people horn players like i'm i'm set like i got you bastards you know <laughs> but but let's say like the first guitarist, guitarist in history that's got them bastards. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, but, you know, let's say, let's say like, there's a groove, like, a, a shuffle groove, right? And I was like, man, I want to play, like, you know, like, that Chess Records, like, shuffle, like, with that Fred um, below, you know, the drummer who plays on that stuff. It's just so, it's awesome. It just feels so good, you know? And, what's like, an, well... What's an example of that feel? Well, it's just like a, you know, I mean, just like kind of a basic shuffle, but I was always playing it, like, with this fingering because I was always thinking, like, I don't want to use my pinky finger for the bass really much, but then... But then, so you're doing this whole thing where you're like... So I'm in, like, A-flat for me, which, like, which sucks, right? Right? So then, let's... It's like third finger, right? But check out what happens when you put the pinky finger to play some of the bass notes. The groove opens up. You have less availability for note choices in terms of what you can do on the guitar. But the groove gets... So you lose like half of your potential melodic invention. But the rhythmic thing just gets so much stronger. So like you can go from doing something like... 
right? But then you put the pinky in, you don't get all that stuff, but check this groove out. Like, uh. So what you have is so much, it, it has just, you just feel like, okay, wow, you know? It's the difference between of like a lot of the grooves, like a lot of the fingerings I was using was like trying to figure out like, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense. That's dumb. I mean, that flies in the face of everything kind of like you learn when you're coming from the guitar, you know? And, but then whenever I, I kind of fall into something like that, oh, I think I'm like the neatest thing since Swiss cheese. I developed something new. No, you didn't develop anything. You're just using basically a technique that Andre Segovia was using or bass players used. You know what I mean? And you just, you did something a little different with it and hybridized it, but it's really just the same damn thing. It's all, the thing is, is like, if you open your mind to that stuff, which is usually the biggest problem we all have, then it's all out there if you want it, you know? Every little thing makes a difference too. Like, I, when I was a teenager, I was real big on, you know, including my pinky and stuff. Sure, sure. M much later, I realized the vibrato, for me, personally, does not sound as strong when I'm using my pinky. Not, it just doesn't you, sound dude, as good. you are so right. And I was just, I'm sorry to geek out with you, and uh, but I exact, I had that exact experience recently. Like, for instance, because of uh, what I'm doing, I'm always having to maximize every finger, right? And I mean, look at your pinky. It's just like, he's like, you know, vestigial almost. Yeah, you can you just know? see this got a, it's got a bullseye on it this pinky's being evolutionarily gonna be gone <laughs> in a few years <laughs> it's nose picking only you know but so yeah. check this and you're totally right and like when you see a lot of those jazz guys like doing those like the the older school jazz guys like george benson if you see things with west montgomery they're not using their pinky a lot i mean let's say they're doing lines where and also because a lot of them are playing on that shorter scale length that gibson scale length so they yep. they there's there's never and big guys with big hands, you're never running out of, so you're never, the stretches aren't too yeah. far. So like, let's say you're doing a, a thing like, you know, for instance, like I would be playing like something like, um, you know, just like, uh, uh, let, me, let me just take a, a simple kind of, right? Right, and I'd be like, right with my pinky. But then you do that same lick with your third finger right in the slide. Yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. Right, right. Yeah. Right, see how much stronger it is? Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling that. So you gotta kinda like. You gotta eliminate note choices for rhythm. And not just rhythm, but also articulation. Right? Damn, Charlie. Right, let's uh, do that same lick though with the pinky finger and you see like our similar lick. Yeah, right. Ah. See how it's kind of, kind of like struggling to keep up? Yeah. 
right. right. Part of it is just the guy who's playing it. It feels better because everything I'm watching you do either way is ah, <laughs> it's man, really but, awesome. Man. No, I appreciate it. But, you know, it's really true. And I, and I just realized, like, okay, what I'm noticing about my own uh, evolution, and I'm sure many people notice the same thing, is like, you know, you, you keep going up against these walls and, you, you, you know, you, you break through the other side with your playing. But it's always, for me, it's always reducing reducing Um, absolutely endless amounts of reduction you know to the point where okay yeah you know what you're gonna do you'll there'll be a point in the gig where like you do the fancy kind of fretwork shit and people go woot 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 and you know what they're paying money they got a job they're like i'm coming to see a guitar player i want to see some guitar playing at some point and that's fine but but you know ultimately for me it's like wow let me let me try to figure out a way to make the rhythm beat deeper the groove tighter not tight in in an uptight way, but tight in like a way where where all of the the bolts are tightened down. Exactly, and then you can get as loose as you want to get. You know yeah, what I mean? F- that feeling like when you get in an amazing car. And yeah, everything's you know, bolted solid. Ex- exactly, you can do whatever you, know. you want. You yeah, crazy. yeah. I mean, I loved my 1983 Honda Civic, but it's t- sometimes I play stuff that makes me feel like that. I'm like, well, you know what? <laughs> Maybe it's time to, time to figure out why I don't like the way that that sounds. You know. Yeah, start tightening shit down. You know, exactly. Now, I'm really curious, you know, if we could somehow figure out how you, where you started from and how you ended up with this whole singular thing that you do in music and on guitar. Like, maybe even going back, was, was your household musical? You had those oh, Lead yeah, Belly yeah, records playing yeah, yeah. from your mom. That's key. Well, and you remember, I mean, you're not that much younger than me, really. I mean, uh, what do you know? We're both of quite young, aren't We're, we? We are quite young. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I was like a couple of years Behind you in school, yeah, like two, exactly. Yeah, in Berkeley, Berkeley High School. Yeah, man. So you remember, um, my you remember Subway guitars? Heck yeah, I got and my first guitar there from Ralph Novak from, before he developed right? the fan fretboard yeah. guitars that you used to use, or and I probably still have several of those. Yeah, absolutely, and everybody worked out of. Uh, Subway Fat Dog's place, you know, through the years. Yeah, fat right? Dog, I gave and him my bicycle. Yeah, and he had bike, uh, and I had a bicycle from him. It was like a Schwinn, no speed. I boy, that thing was that was my mode of transportation. I lived in Oakland. I would be riding that to Berkeley every day, you know. But um, so we lived, you know, there was sec- and there was secondhand guitars on Martin right. Luther King. Remember that secondhand guitars? That's where Satriani taught, and that's where Joe Satriani taught. And um, so I spent all my time, and my mom repaired guitars, so she really? worked for both places repairing oh. their guitars yeah so we always had guitars but the funny thing is we were so like i had no money i got my first guitar from fat dog for like seven dollars you know and i never owned a fender or a gibson guitar like all my friends had the fancy guitars like and i knew the people but we couldn't afford it it was just, that like, wasn't the place money. to get one of those guitars no it was not uh, my i got a <laughs> harmony was... stratotone yeah i had that exact one that's funny i remember <laughs> thinking Man, I can't wait till I can get a Fender Stratotone. <laughs> exactly. Not realizing that it was called Stratocaster. <laughs> I remember my guitar was a Memphis. Yeah, I had yeah. the Memphis amp. Oh, yeah. The three-inch man. speaker. You turn it up really loud. Oh, my God. And I remember the smell. Like I just like remember being a kid and and 
just seeing I mean I'm sure it's not like that for them today and I'm sure you remember it this way but I remember like going in those those places and we would spend all day at Subway until they kicked us out and then we'd go over to secondhand and spend all our time there you know and I just remember like the smell of the instrument like you get an instrument down off the wall and you would smell it and immediately you would be excited like you would see how for me at least oh, yeah. I was like a dog too. you know you'd see the, like how the light played off of the tuning machines that's what I remember I, most when I got my guitar at Subway was someday I'm gonna be able to get one of those like when I grow up and what I was looking at was like these shiny Tysco Del Rey's with like six pickups yes. and 20 switches on them <laughs> like someone I'm an adult I can buy one of those yeah but you know Fat Dog had bought tons of like you know that Echo company the Italian company he had like right. A where so according to sources, a warehouse full of that stuff, and that was his thing. And you know what? To be honest, he actually had a point because his thing was like these Dan Electros and Silvertones are great guitars. You got to change the bridge, you got to change the tuning machines, and you got to change a few other appointments. And you have a really, really good, really affordable guitar. And I got to say, he was right. You know, I mean, look at the guitar. One of those guitars, Ry Cooter plays like one of his like the two guitar. I mean, that thing is like a, you know, that's a. a pawn shop special and that's like well it's Ry Cooter playing it so it sounds incredible but that's you know so anyway I was surrounded by that and as you you remember uh, Satriani you know I mean you would everyone took lessons from him I mean I tell people like oh you know yeah I took lessons from Joe Satriani they're like what oh my god I was just, you must have been a, no I was not I was just the kid number 100 because there were so everybody in Berkeley at that time played guitar and, and and very well you know and not only that but there was that Berkeley High Jazz Band where you had guys like Dave Ellis and Josh Redman who late I didn't even know him like it was it was a couple years before I realized wait a minute that's that same guy that was you know Josh Shedroff yeah exactly yeah and and so many I mean Peter Applebaum Stephen Bernstein Will Bernard I mean the list goes on and on and on and totally. on and but the thing about growing up there I realized it was so special if if you know that book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell I don't know if you read that it's a <laughs> <laughs> it's a worthy, very worthy read because I, I, I kept thinking like, okay, because basically if you're going to do something at a, aspire to do something at a high level, you, you, according to him, and you know, there's some holes in his theory, but according to him, you need, you need 10,000 hours of, oh, of yeah, practice yeah. time. You need to have a, um, an environment that has all of the little things you need and you need people in that vi environment to kind of shepherd you from one thing to the other and I don't think you could have come up with a better place than Berkeley at that time just for someone who was completely music centric there there was no better place because culturally it was multicultural and we didn't even know what that meant it just meant wow I really like you know it's like me it's just like I'm this son of this single you know commie jew new york mom and <laughs> i really like soul and r&b music where do i go to hear that how where do i find these guitar players like and then oh larry blake's so i'm seeing um you know i'm seeing uh clarence gatemouth brown and robert cray and you know and and then i'm going to the circle star theater i see all these motown all these things like wow you know you then you know other friends of mine were like i really like hardcore punk rock music so you just turn on calyx and you hear that and others like i really like you know african drumming well you you go down to Ashkenaz and you see that or other people are like I really like uh, um, 
um, klezmer music. Yeah, you go there. You hear that. Any kind of music. You want country? Anything you want. You would be able to hear it, play it, and you would find someone who was damn good at it to teach you how to do it. And that's an amazing. Yeah, and you don't, I don't think you, even in this day and age, like, because we're talking about the 70s, you know, and the early 80s, and there were so many talented people. And the beautiful thing about it, what I learned from it, was that music, all music and all music culture is convergent, not divergent. It all comes together. And, uh, you know, later on, I remember going out into the the larger world and um, being shocked at two things. One was how intense and intensely everyone wanted to, myself included at that point, put things into little boxes, you know, stylistic boxes, cultural boxes, this, that, you know. Um, and the other thing was I'd go places, you know, to play like when I was a street musician in Europe, people would be like, man, show me that. How did you do that on the guitar? I'm just like, what do you mean? How did I do that? Everybody where I come from knows how to do this. Like what would something they would ask? I don't know. (laughs) Just, just some, you know, slick little move or something. I mean, I can't even remember what it was, you know, but something that probably Joe Satriani showed me how to do just, just technically, you know what I mean? And you could not have asked for... I don't think a better technical guitar teacher like ever in terms of in terms of a lot of people like if you look up um, a guy named Earl Bostick he's a he's a saxophone player in the 40s that apparently all these people studied with because he was just like the like unrivaled technical expert on the saxophone um and uh and i mean i feel like well joe satrani also he had a, a real i mean people know him for the music that he does but he he's got a real breadth of music experience and knowledge that none of his fans even oh, would yeah. imagine he's that he has so much deeper than oh even yeah infinite fans might know they, yeah and he turned me on to all that stuff you know what i mean he was like oh this this guy you got i remember i remember it's not my thing at all but he was like, he took when I was like fifteen. He's like, you need to come to see Alan Holdsworth. So he took me to see Alan Holdsworth, and I was just like, wow, okay, wow. Like I didn't, you know. And then he, then he was like, you know, you really need. And I had heard James Brown here and there, but I didn't. It's funny, funnily enough, with all the blues and R&B, I didn't really. But he was really into James Brown. He's like, okay, this is this. These are the records you need to check out. This, that, and, and, and he heard my playing, like, at the, he, he's like, you need, I think you would dig this. And he was the one, he's like, you know, I got really into rockabilly, and he's like, I think you would dig these guitar players. Check these guitar players out, and then come back next week, and if you have some things you want to, I'll show you how to do them, you know, stuff like that. Um, so, and he was very, I mean, and people also think of him in this very dogmatic way, but he was, he was incredibly hard on you, because, and, and I think if you were someone like me who knew that he knew that I could, if I got my work ethic together, that I could be pretty good, you know. He would be, like, relent, relentless on me, unrelenting, just kicking my ass. And I needed it, you know. So he, he, would, he would really make sure that uh, you, you did really, you really worked your ass off. But he never was dogmatic about what he wanted you to play. He was just dogmatic about how physically he wanted you to play. It was like he wanted to give you the tools so that you could do whatever the hell aesthetically or stylistically you would want to do later on. You know what I mean? Totally, yeah. He was he went deep in there and helped people realize their yeah. full potential and 
get a, get some kind of escape velocity going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, and I think he must have really liked you if he was bringing you to concerts and telling you all that stuff. Yeah, and I used to used to take me to see his band like at the rehearsal. There was a rehearsal spot on like Carlton and Sixth Street in Berkeley back when you could have something like yeah. that. And I don't know if you remember that place. It was a big kind of barn like industrial kind of building there and my band rehearsed there a bunch of bands rehearsed in that place but he would take me to see his band rehearse there and uh you know show me like okay explain stuff to me this is how, how this works you know and i was 15 like uh, you know i was like the age my son is now i was totally agog i was like wow and then after you know that and then being surrounded by my surrounded by my mom's music and stuff she was into you know um i mean man, there's so many guitar players i just think about that era and we took it for granted but you know we would just be sitting around check this out check this out check yeah, this you, out what were you playing around 15 what kind of stuff i mean i can't even do it on this but i was just into like rockabilly you know and just you know I, that's all yeah. i was in I couldn't really do it on this guitar, but just typical kind of stuff. What kind of artists know? were you listening to? I was really into like the guitar players that played with the great the singers. Like I was into Cliff Gallup, who played with yeah. Gene uh, Vincent. I was into Paul Burleson. I was into, um, and then I was really into Guitar Slim and Magic Sam, and um, you know Scotty Moore. I'm trying to think of of other people at that point, and you know. And I remember when Danny Gatton came to town, too, with uh, Robert Gordon. Oh, cool. Played at the Berkeley Square. So you saw that? Dude, I did <laughs> not see it. That was the worst part, as I heard the tape, because the guy made a board tape of it. That's cool. Yeah, so, but, but you know, and, and I remember everybody talking about it, like, oh, man, you missed this thing, you know? And then my friend Eric Dinwiddie, he goes by Eric Din now, yeah, we came up together. We were like little guitar gangsters together. We would go everywhere trying to hear and seek out whatever guitar stuff was. And, you know, um, his band, he had a band, popular band at that time called the Uptones, you know? Um, and they were fairly popular. Um, and they opened in, in 1983 at... The Stone in San Francisco. Remember The Stone? Yeah. And uh, they, I don't know if it's still there. I would assume it's not. Nope. I think it's a uh, but they naughty opened, club. Yeah, they opened for Stevie Ray Vaughan. And um, wow. he was really unknown at that point. Not unknown. I mean, he was playing The Stone, but there weren't a lot of people there that night, you know? And my friends and I were, we because it was Eric Dinwiddie, myself, and another couple guys, and we're total like blues like Nazis, you know what I mean? I mean, we've been seeing like Clarence Gatemouth Brown, Brownie McGee, Robert Cray, you know, Albert King, all these yeah. guys that we could go, uh, Albert Collins that we could see, you know, listening to all that old blues music. So we heard Stevie Ray Vaughan and we're, we're instant asshole teenagers are like, this guy isn't that good. This isn't that great. You know, like, but then we went, then we're like, after about three tunes, we're like, yeah, this is nice, man. This is good. <laughs> then we were fans. Yeah. And then we ended up hanging with him. Like, not a heavy hang, but, like, we were just, like, 16-year-old kids, and we were just, like, backstage, and, um, and nobody, because nobody knew, he wasn't, like, a big name, right. I saw you him know? right around the same time. Yeah. With the Kabuki. Ex right. And so that was probably later at yeah, then. Yeah, probably twice as many people. Exactly. But still not that many. Yeah, I mean, I think there may have been 50 people there, Yeah, dude. this was probably about 200. 
Yeah, ex- right. Yeah, and and he his hand he was so cool, man. He knew we were guitar players. He kind of was like, oh wow, you know. I mean, he had. I remember his dressing room was like, wow. It was filled with like bottles of of uh, hard liquor and cartons of cigarettes. I mean, they were doing it hard, you know. But he was really cool. He really took time to kind of say, hey, what do you tell you? Anything? I don't remember really too much, you know. I don't remember that much. To be, I just remember the kind of the hang, the scene, you know. Yeah, I was blown away when I saw. I saw him, and it really felt like Texas had landed on San Francisco. Yeah, like this was so yeah. alien compared to the music yeah. around the city. Well, but I tell you, the thing that we were into also at the time was we knew his older brother because there were a couple records by the Fabulous Thunderbirds that we that I loved, man. Uh, that what is it? When girls go wild, or think, or girls go crazy, or something like that. That record and another record, and we were just into that. You know that just like. You know that same kind of group. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Nasty. that was that was the shit. Just and loving the way that his brother was was playing. You know. Uh, yeah, I love his brother Jimmy Vine. Oh man, yeah, great. Like the feel thing and, yeah. the, and the tone and the, the sound. I mean, because he I really saw them open for Rush, which was the oddest Whoa! pairing. What a weird pairing. The yeah. crowd didn't quite get them, but. I that was one of those things where Rush probably really wanted them on the yeah, bill. Yeah, Rush was so cool. They always had great openers. They're like, we want more once. Yeah, it's like we want some music we want to listen Steve to. Morse. Dude, I opened for John Mayer, you know, and with I had a quintet with like um, bone and saxophone and chromatic harmonica and drummer and myself. And um, this is like I don't know, two thousand, two thousand one. Some sometime like that, right when he was like blowing up and getting he was blowing huge. up. They were big yeah. places, and he was. I guess he, you know, he's a fan of mine. I mean, he's, he's a nice guy. He bought all like my old guitars on eBay, and he would come to my gigs and like you know when he was young, younger, and he ended up hiring like half the musicians that played with me at one point. So you know, he's been very you know good to me and my people, kind of. And so he he like really wanted to have me open for his um, tour, you know. And we get out there, and it's like okay, wait a minute, we're basically playing for John Mayer every night because the, and his crew and the, and the staff at wherever we were because it was like a bunch of 16-year-old girls look, and every time it was just like, you know, they're just not in that part of their musical evolution where they're Dude. ready to accept something like that. It's just too weird for them. And they were kind of, they were always looking at us like, is what is going on? Is this? Dude, I mean, not to put myself in the same sentence as what you do, but I, I opened Get once for Blake Shelton. I don't even know Freaking, who that is. Like a big country guy. Oh, okay. Like on The Voice and stuff. He see, I, I purposely no, don't have don't cable know. TV, so I don't ever see any of this stuff. Well, I don't think you need cable for that. No, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was like a free concert, and we, we did like five instrumentals, and I sang like three songs. But yeah, I just had a barricade full of teenagers just kind of looking at me, waiting for Blake to come on, and they were kind of like, they were nice, but they were just not into it, really. They weren't <laughs> that into it. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, it was all right. It was cool. But yeah. I, know that, I know that feeling. And uh, But John Mayer's been such a great supporter of guitar in general. Like, he really does so yeah. much for guitar. Not just yeah, he in, does. I mean, I don't know his world yeah. at all, really. I just know him yeah. and... Um, because obviously I'm not a part of that universe in even the most remote way, you know. Do you have any um, cool hangs with him or anything, or just uh, like jams or? Not really. Probably it's mostly my fault. Because usually when the gig's over, I'm just back in the hotel with my book. <laughs> first, almost <laughs> the first thing. Um, I hear you. But he just, I, you know, 
I just he's a good guy, man. And you know what? He's a good good musician and and he writes good songs i mean it's not my thing i'm not part of that generation that that's designed for but you know the fact of the matter is and and you know why it is because he's not afraid to be corny right (laughs) you can't be afraid to be corny you can't be so cool that you know and i mean he rode that all the way to the bank i mean he probably owns the bank at this point you know it's pretty crazy (laughs) man he owns a lot of things but now how did you Yes. Where did this come from? You started off on a, on a what was it? An echo guitar? What were you playing? Oh, what was I playing? No, you know what I had a, um, <laughs> I had a Memphis, a Memphis, Memphis, Memphis Strat. But you know, I started on drums. I didn't want to play yeah. guitar because that was what everyone that I knew played guitar. I wanted oh, to play okay. drums, so I played drums for a while, um, and they kicked me out of the jazz band for playing too loud, <laughs> playing too funky. <laughs> No, I'm sure it was horrendous. I was probably I just know. absolutely hor- horrible. I bet uh, you there's some groove going on. You say that you, right as we were setting up in here, you said you got to play drums every day just to keep yourself sane or something. Yeah, I mean it's like it's really like my hobby. Like I really love it like a hobby. And and I, I mean for this winter I didn't have a gig for three months. I, you know, somehow that's just the cards that were dealt me. You know, um, so I was like, all right, you know what? I need to use this time wisely. And I spent two hours every day playing drums, not like getting fancy, just playing the grooves and really trying to understand like absurdities like the and of four, you know, stuff like that. Really trying like, okay, now's my time. I don't have any excuses. I really have to try to open this up and 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 figure this out what this means out and and then bring it back to my instrument you know yeah and i feel like that uh, the drum set for me even a real not even a full drum set even just like a bass drum a snare drum a hi-hat bass drum snare drum cymbal just something simple that can just allow me to play you know polyphonic uh beats you know right and um and you know it just it just makes me i just it just makes me feel good you know and and then I bring that information to this instrument, and it makes it more articulate. Articulate, you know what I mean? Yeah. So instead of playing, like I just try to, like just keep stuff clean, you know. Instead of like just trying to, like trying to play stuff that's that's more complicated than it needs to be, you know. I'm just trying to play stuff that's like a groove that's that slow, you know. Yeah. Got some pocket in there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then even when you're going on fast grooves, trying to keep them like, you know, like... I mean, and that's not even really yeah. a fast groove. Let's say you're doing like a real fast groove, like you like, or even a. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just to yeah, try to totally. try to keep it 
as articulate as you can where you, and where you feel every pulse yeah you know and then i started realizing like okay you know there was a time when i really liked to play fast tempos and then i just realized like you know what and i read something about thelonious monk like they were saying man how come you never play the burning fast tempos and, and he's just like because i don't like them I like mid-tempo, and everything, almost everything he wrote was mid-tempo, with the exception of a few ballads. Everything he wrote took place within such a small BPM range, but you never even, it was never a thought that even crossed my mind once. Interesting. You know what I mean? Because it just sounds so good, and, and um, you know, like, you can you can get, like, a, a fast, like, one of those James Brown grooves is... To me, that's kind of fast. That's you awesome. Know? I think I remember Adam. You taught Adam that once. Or I think it's possible, yeah. but to me, <laughs> that's Johnson. like the ultimate guitar counterpoint tongue twister. Because you have yeah. this bass line that w- where it never plays on beat one, and you have... And you have... Why that's just the stuff that makes me like happy, you I know. Love that. So yeah, it's um, one of the essential food groups. Yeah, totally. But then, like, if if you're playing like some jazz music, you know, like yeah, you can do like a lot of you know of uh, the the walking bass lines and and the stuff like that, you know. But then what I realized, like, okay, so I was like doing stuff like that was like, okay, I'm gonna play like these walking bass lines and 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 melodies. I realize, like, man, I'm getting crossed up. I'm getting tied up, and 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 yeah, you can do it and do it better than than most. But it still wasn't didn't ultimately feel good, you know. So like, you have a tune that was just like, you know, say something like, um, I don't know. Let's just say you have a tune that's like. You know, or just like a, a like um like. Then why not like? Like a tune feel that sucked. what I mean or even 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 like a a, a ragtime feel you know God, funk is just everywhere because this is the funk of its time yeah uh, I think that You know what I'm saying? Like, and you can get that, that thing. It, just whatever works, whatever feels good, you know, just trying to, to, 
to and try to be as articulate as possible and and then the I maybe ultimately the story will tell itself you know yeah. um the problem I run up against is that so much of that is like what I call covert chops like it's not it takes so much energy and it's so hard and when you execute it perfectly nobody knows <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> they feel like they feel good though it feels good you know they don't yeah. stop tapping their feet at any point right. in the song you know hopefully hopefully not you well, know? you're a funk Minor, you just mine the <laughs> funk out of every genre like that. You're just like you said. I mean, it's like that ragtime bit is so. It's the funk of its time, funk, right? Man, you know, I mean, you, those guys were they doing yeah. that? Yeah. Whoops. You know what I mean? Yeah. All that, that's like their yeah. their fast. It's funk very, from really, that yeah, time. Intricate. I remember when I first started watching you play, you were playing with Michael Franti. Now, how did you, when did you first decide, I want to get one, some bass strings going out of, to a separate amplifier? When did, when was that moment? Did you start with one or two strings or? You know, it's so funny because I'm thinking of, of uh, our friend Adam Johnson right now and, and maybe even, maybe even you because I think maybe you because I, I had just been, because I didn't, when I stopped being a street musician, I didn't even own an amp. And when I got that gig with Hypocrisy, I didn't own an amp. Like, they had to get me an amplifier. And I remember it was like this polytone, like, right. and I was playing everything through that. And then I, you know, I started this trio with um, Jay Lane and Dave Ellis. And I was like, man, they're like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to, because I wasn't that great at it then. You know what I mean? It, not saying I'm the greatest now, but I can play convincingly at least, you know. Then I was just figuring it out. And they're like, all right, listen, dude, you need a bass amp. This is only going to work. You got to get so a bass. Someone amp. else told you that. Yeah, and so then I went and um, you know, I mean, I didn't have any money, so I sold whatever I needed to sell, and I got a little uh, a bass amp. I remember it was a Ampeg one fifteen bass combo, and um, and then I had Ralph put a pickup, a Bartolini pickup, in that split, and you could split it however you wanted to split it. So he split it. At that time, I was playing a seven string guitar. He split it three and four right and then um but it was tuned differently than this one and i remember playing at the up and down club when we still played upstairs yeah and i was playing and i th i'm sure adam was there and you may have been I there mean, too i saw you at least twice at the up and down yeah i think i played there once or twice myself back in that day that's when there was like that acid jazz movement in right, san francisco right right you know well we had a lot of different people playing a lot of music and we had young people that owned the bars and young people that came out you know, it was right. a whole different thing. It doesn't happen much anymore. But yeah, and I remember that night, and I remember I had a, I was so excited because I, not only did I get the bass amp, but I got an octaver pedal for the bass. So I was just like, wow, I was trying to get my, you know, Roger and Zap on with that pedal. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, so that's how that happened. And then it just, you know, the problem with it is, is just like, you know, once I opened up that can of worms, then it started becoming, okay, we got to deal with scale length now, you know, with this fan fret system. It's like, okay, what's the ideal scale length? Okay, we got the scale length, but I really want more of a bass sound out of the bass and more of a guitar sound out of the guitar. How do we do this? And this is so many iterations later, you know, and tunings. And now I'm going to change the tuning, you know, because I used to tune E. That seven string was like a regular guitar with low A. Then I got an eight string which I tuned E, A, D, A, D, G, B, E. And that's the kind of tuning I use for probably all those Blue Note records. Then I took that same concept, but I lost the high string, and I tuned up a half step to F. So everything was... And immediately the bass started sounding better and feeling better with a little more tension and, and pop. 
And because I was still really into the idea of like, okay, I'm a guitar player and a bass player, blah, 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 blah. I hadn't fully like, you know, committed, not committed, but I hadn't fully departed from the shore of that thing. I was kind of in the middle. And then there was a point where I was like the come to Jesus moment where I was just like, you know what? If I'm doing this ridiculous thing, I might as well just do it all the way and make it really be its own thing and let my freak flag fly. You know, so it's just like, well, what's on paper? What's an ideal? About 10 years ago, I was like, what's an ideal tuning for this instrument? on paper that has the the least not not what my own dogma wants but that that technically and physically has the least compromises and i came upon this thing okay so i'm have g c f for the low bass so it's like a bass the low three strings on the third fret and then the middle four strings of a guitar on the third fret um and this scale length is 29 to 25 and a half which the correlating scale length for a 29 at G on E would be like a 35 inch bass scale. So that was where I made a little mistake because 28 is fine and I don't have the biggest hands. So right now I'm waiting. Jeff Traugott has got an instrument made that's 28 to 25 and a half. And I've just had my fingers crossed that that's kind of going to be like the perfect thing. And, and, you know, and, and there haven't been a lot of steps backwards, really. It's mostly been steps forward, some lateral steps, but you know, it's just constantly trying to, to do this. And, And my hope is that, you know, there are a lot of other people actually playing this crazy instrument. And my hope is that, you know, they can just learn what it took me 20 years to figure out 25 years at this point to figure out they can just learn that in a year and then they can make their own contribution they'll have their own idea and they'll take it in a totally different direction than than i did hopefully you know they will they will build off it but it's not going to be as quick as a year (laughs) (laughs) well you'd be surprised did you ever build off guys like tuck andres oh man tuck was a huge influence um i mean he that first record that he and patty put out was like that i remember being a street musician in europe and someone saying you know because i was really into joe pass and some saying you know what you you might really like these guys and it gave me that a tape cassette tape and i was like whoa what funny you're off in europe and tuck is like from from your own backyard exactly but you gotta understand i think tuck's 20 years older than i am and I remember... And he was from across the bay, too. So yeah, it was like yeah. a million miles away. But also, you know, and I remember getting a guitar player magazine that had a big article on him. Sound page? I don't know what That might have been a little later. Okay, sorry. I didn't but cut. this is probably in like, um, 88, 1988? Almost definitely it was 1988. And I remember seeing this um, article and I photocopied it like twice so I could always have it and refer to it because it was a lot of then you you and you remember there was no information you're not going on YouTube and learn you're like if you were into it you had to scratch and claw to get any information you know um and I went to see him a bunch of times I never introduced myself or met him I was just like a punk kid you know I just was like checking it out no no now we know each other yeah I love, he's yeah, I, he's awesome I he's took some lessons from him when I was a senior in high school oh my god I would have yeah I would have loved to have done that but I just didn't it didn't ever presented itself I didn't make it happen I should have but um but I remember reading this thing about at the time he said he was 36 years old at the time and I said, man, when I'm 36, I want to have accomplished like what he's accomplished, you know? <laughs> Good to have goals. Yeah, you know, but, but 
I mean, and that's the thing. It's like you're standing on people's shoulders. And, and he figured out a lot of stuff that didn't exist before he put his nose to the grindstone and figured it out. And I feel like whatever I did on my instrument, I, it, it came from there as well as the older blues guys. I don't know if you know this guy around now, this guy, Ben Lacey. Have you heard Ben Lacey? Fuck yeah. <laughs> he is unreal. Got a curse. Got a curse in honor of Ben. Real. He's unreal. And, you know, he's really taken that tuck thing on the guitar to the next level he's also super musical and not just a technique i mean he's got this incredible technique but he's also really like to me he's like a guy like barney kessel or something like that back in the day super musical all about the tunes i don't think he writes his own music but it's all about the tunes and investigating the tunes as far as you can and Man, it's really a pleasure to hear him play. You know even him? Yacht Rock. Like, he'll play a Yacht Rock tune. I'm like, man, I, I don't even really like that tune, and I like this, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know what I love about him? And he, he's definitely going to be on this show one of these days. It's oh, just, cool. Next time I'm in Kentucky exactly. or he's in California. But, yeah, um, Scott Amendola and I were on tour, and we had we I was texting Ben. I was like, dude, we want to stop by your house because we were driving. But we were so late to our gig, we couldn't even stop in to say hi. It kind of bummed me out. That's how it goes sometimes. But well, the cool thing, he's got that... I call it his snare drum. He smacks oh, his yeah. string and it's got the reverb tank on the amp. And it's yeah. Just, well, it sounds yeah. so great. Right? He's, but, he's done this whole thing where, granted, you know, it's... It, and I was thinking, oh, man, how can I do that? I can't do it on my instrument because my instrument is just not set up. I mean, you can see my low strings. You can drive a truck under those. They're so high. You I know? can see that. Lots of, of tension. And, and it's just because... My whole thing is predicated on playing with a drummer, you know. His whole thing is predicated on playing solo. And he figured out, like, the thing that Tuck was always doing was that. You know. Right. That thing he did? Well, Ben, ben took that and and expounded on it. And he took that down a, an, air, an area where, okay, it's not just going to be. He's not just going to do that. He's going to be like, okay, wait a minute. Now, okay, so my right hand can do that, but my left hand can also like, can also play these these uh, uh, snare drum and a bass drum kind of thing. And boy, man, he really took his time with it. And and uh, people should be juiced, man. He did yeah. a lot of a lot well, of work. I think of the yeah, Tuck and you and Ben, and it's kind of building on this this kind of a thing you know yeah cool you know way, but it, it is i mean you're all completely i'm different jealous and singular in your own I, style. yeah i know what you mean i mean i'm jealous when i hear ben do his thing because wow. it's just like man but that's a that's the route that that he took we all you all you have to choose a, you you can't do, yeah. you do it all you got to choose choose whatever the street is you go down yeah you know or the exit you get off it you got to choose that for yourself and what makes the most sense for you um aesthetically and stylistically and if you don't do what makes the most sense for you then it's not going to be right you know when you hear it but like i hear his playing and it just pisses me off because like i want to be able to do that on my instrument but no i can't i made my choice you know <laughs> i don't know I, yeah. or i'll like, hear like rai cooter do a slide thing and i'll just be god Damn it, I wish I could do that. I mean, you could get some like. But that's about you as just close as I it. can get. That's as close as I can get. That's pretty damn close. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I 
your your guitar amp because you got a guitar amp yeah. and a bass amp sounds really great. I love those car amps. Yeah. What, do you, what are you running there? Uh, this is a car rambler, but um, I had Steve Carr. They're such cool people. He's like I. We actually were on tour down there, Scott and I, and we we they're in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. It's a small town. It's a nice little town, and we just drove by their shop. You know, it's like a shop. Sweet. It reminded me of like Subway Guitars back in the day, but a little more pro. You know what I mean yeah, in terms of how Steve has everything right. set up because they're it's a factory. It's not a guitar store. You know, but um, he like all the people there are really cool he pays everyone a really good way like it just takes care of his people and you can really feel that when you're there you know and um and he really loves music and he really loves what he does yeah i mean i went down there it's just like man and you know like these handles are made by a bridle place like a horse bridlery place oh, like right. down the road from them you know what i mean and you see all this stuff is like the the cabinets are made by a guy that lou a guy named lou uh makes all the cabinetry you know designs the the cabinets so you know okay so even as an artist like this amp was not cheap but i have two of them i have I this one stuff. here and i have one on the west coast and I mean, basically, throw it around, beat the hell out of it as a tube amp. It just keeps going and going because it's just such high quality, you know. And this is a Rambler, but he made it Class AB for me, not Class A. Because, I mean, I love Class A stuff, but I really wanted more to have the the punch of the AB than the sweet singing kind of stuff of the Class A. Because it, everything I do is so rhythmically oriented that I need the punch a little more than I need the... Yeah. The vocal thing, you know. Got such a clear tone. Will you can I hear the Yeah, sure. I mean it's 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 not cranked, you know. But, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I love you their know? stuff and they get they overdrive really nicely too. I don't know how often you push it that hard, but you know I do. I mean, yeah. usually like when I'm playing with a drummer, this thing will be yeah. getting up there. Just yeah. the ride cymbal alone, you gotta give it a little bit, you know. And uh, but I I really love it, and it's just like one of those things where like you just buy it once and you're kind of done. You know, and I mean, you don't really need to buy. It. You don't need to unless you want. Like someday I wouldn't mind saving up for like one. They have one called a Mercury, which is just like one right. tube, and it, and it would be perfect for this little space here. You know, and recording. But I don't record that much, and um, you know I I don't know. But I just I'm at that age where I just want the good sound. I don't want to have to think about it. You know. Holy man. Yeah. On the bass side. Yeah. Well, I have this boogie um, bass amp that i've had for a long time i mean tn lawrence you know tn and boogie those TN's guys are the coolest he's the dopest he's awesome um we always end up getting into like one hour political world uh, discussions when we're on the phone <laughs> yeah um but he always you know hooks me up with this stuff and, and i basically i had this walkabout amplifier which is i think a 300 watt amplifier that's fallen down quite a few staircases and i have a i had a boogie 15 single 15 cabinet for years i mean it yeah. fell down so many flights of stairs that thing was had the living crap beaten out of it it worked every time and it the only time it finally bit the dust was i shipped it and ups destroyed it oh man <laughs> but you know you can't really blame it it's a heavy thing that cabinet looks brand new happen. it is brand new it's just their latest 15 neodymium subway series and i have this cabinet and i have one um called a um it's a walkabout uh cabinet 
and it has like a passive radio. I'm single 15. That's kind of all I really need. And yeah. single 15 and three, 400 watts, I'm good. I'm good to go, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I have one in one here and then one in California, so that I can have something. I, you know, it's the back line that ends up killing me at these gigs, you know, money-wise. You know, you got to rent it, and then it sounds terrible, too, you know. You rent it and pay for cartage over and back. Oh, and it's crazy, man. They charge you if they're going to... You want us to take it out of the cases, too? That's going to be extra. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you'll you'll see a local person who does it who really takes a lot of pride in what they do, and you'll feel like, okay, you know what? Yeah. I don't mind giving money to this guy and his family. But a lot of times, it's like big corporate kind of things, and it's just like these guys, they, they throw a fender, some du jour that's just been beaten all to hell, and you, you have to sit there fixing the amp for your sound check, you know? Um, I don't know, man. I mean, we have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have Craigslist. Why can't we start some type of a musician's uh, backline network across yeah, the, right. the United States? You know, so that, I mean, Uber does it. I mean, we have Airbnb. Why can't we do something like that? Zip amp, like yeah, zip cars. Yeah, exactly. Why not? You know, people can just say, hey, come, you, you want an amp? Come to my house Amps tonight. to go. Exactly. Like cars to go. You guys have that out here? Where my brother's talking about that in Brooklyn where he lives. You know, you just, you open the app and there's cars parked around the neighborhood yeah, and you find yeah. one of the cars and hop in. Yeah, that's great. That's great. No, I mean, I don't think we got that in the burbs yet. Mostly it's just like... You, you hate bu- New York City. I don't go there that often anymore. I don't... Hate but is a hate harsh it. word. Let me just tell you something, man. I mean, it's it's like any other big city. The, the cultural... Um, paradigm has shifted so much away from the big cities in terms of like what we were talking about earlier we're talking about Berkeley being this or the Bay Area East Bay especially being like this incredible kind of cultural hotbed melting pot you know laboratory Um, and there's a reason for that because people like our parents who were of modest means could afford to live there Amen. and now and their children like you and I, also people of modest means, there were places we could afford to live. We could get a room in a house with four other excited and excitable musicians and pay 200 bucks a month. I could teach guitar. I could work at a furniture place, which is use furniture, which is what I did. I remember you worked at the foam place, you know, and we could do these things and afford to live in a reasonably metropolitan place with this really intensely exciting grassroots culture that, that not only were we a part of but we were contributors to you know whereas now you see these kids that are the age we were then they're, they what are they going to do when they come to a place like New York or San Francisco or even LA where are they going to live how they they've been totally not only has that millennial generation been marginalized and priced out in terms of any careers but also the arts have been crushed even harder so these people you know, it's like what they say about a place like New York is like it's where people used to come to realize their dreams. Now it's where they come to manifest their their uh, vanity projects because only wealthy right. people really generally only really wealthy people yeah. can afford it. And it's like the other night I was heading into a gig. Uh, it was with Scott Amendola, actually. Um, and uh, we were heading and we could it took like two hours to get there from here. It's like 
15 miles. And we couldn't, there's no parking anywhere. Forget it. You could barely even load in. And what he said was, and you know what the, I'm going to use my, my French, you know what the fucked up thing about this is? All of these people and not one of them is going to come to our gig. <laughs> and he was right. Oh, there were like 10 people at our gig, you know. So that paradigm and that dynamic is shifting. I think the big cities, they have all the real more wealth-oriented culture, which is valid. I mean, the opera, ballet, jazz at Lincoln Center, those are all very valid, great things. I don't want to dog them, but if that's the only thing that you have... Well, got have art then, from the street up. Yeah, and if that's the only thing that you have, that's your own, then your city will die. It's only a place... It's basically like... It's like a vertical kind of gated community, more or less. And, and uh, you know, it's just like every time you know, see Manhattan, it used to be a million... I mean, Berkeley... When we were growing up, I mean, I could name 20 clubs right now if I had to, you know? Yeah. How, what's there now? Just like people waiting online for $8 piece of toast. That's you know? true. <laughs> I mean, the it's just... The whole place has become the gourmet ghetto. Yeah, but there's nothing out. There's, there doesn't seem to be much else. And people I know yeah. that are still living there are just like, I, I don't know what to do. I mean, I just have to get a, a but job. But you know that art is going to pop up somewhere. It and always does. That's what does. I'm thinking of. Like, I'm trying to think, like, what's the next... I hate yeah. to say Brooklyn, or what's the next place where people are truly going to pop up? What's the next San Francisco in the 60s? You know, I don't think it's, I think it's going to be a, an entirely different concept because in the 60s, people weren't saying, I wonder where all these beatniks are going to move. They didn't think, oh, they're going right. to move from Greenwich Village to San Francisco. They didn't think, oh, they're going to move to like make these crazy communes all over the place. That was not on their mind. So, so I, it's not linear, I don't think. Right. Uh, and art is really, in some ways, aspects of it, art and music, they're, they're, they're linear. But really, ultimately, they're not. It just is going to go. It's like water. It's going to find its level. It's going to go where it can go. And, and having things centered in a metropolitan area, maybe that's no longer the paradigm. Maybe we Detroit. are... Yeah, well, that's what they always say. Like, everybody moved to Detroit now, you know? Affordable housing. Exactly. Yeah, sure. I don't know. There's, I mean, you and I travel a lot, and yeah. you, know, you see, you've probably played every big city and countless small towns oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. in the country and I've, in I've Europe. I've driven personally every single, <laughs> I realized to my horror, every single stretch of interstate in the United States, I have driven. <laughs> wow, isn't it amazing? Have you ever, like, if you were to draw a map, like, your friends would be amazed to see a pin dropped every place that you exactly. perform a concert. Absolutely, yeah, man. And I'm proud of that because a lot of people that I know you know, a lot of great kind of people you would put, I guess, in a jazz category, they didn't really deal with the United States and they spent all their time in Europe and, and that kind of can put you at a serious disadvantage, you know, unless you're one of the real big ones, then you, you but then you pretty much just write your ticket wherever you go at that point, yeah, you know. Well, we all know Europe really embraces jazz, blues, everything a lot more deeply well they did I think of- that's changing a lot they have their own musicians now playing their own attitude and I think that, that they're finding that's a little more relevant to them so a lot less Americans are getting hired because it's not exotic or interesting to them anymore you know and the euro is at an all time low against the dollar so you're, you're going to be hard pressed you know visas yeah all plane tickets Oh, man. It's a real easy way to lose money unless you're one of the big, unless you're really, really big, you know. Right. So um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know it's 
nowhere near Christmas, but didn't you do a Christmas record with I did with Bobby, Bobby Brevet. Yeah, yeah. How, what did you show me one of these? I didn't tunes. play this instrument on. What did it. you play? I just played. We went to his studio and he played all the drums and I played guitar, regular guitar and bass on everything. And we just arranged these things from the ground yeah. up. And we would we would start with a, um, you know, we'd start with a um, a click and. Uh, play the arrangement through with drums and the whatever the lead melodic guitar was. We'd play that through and then just layer everything on from so, there. So you're so totally layered kind of a... Oh, yeah, yeah, which is fun. And I was just like, wow, this is easy. This is fast. That's how the other people live. I, exactly. <laughs> I think we did it in like three days. It was really fun, actually. I love doing that. I did a thing with Adam Dorn where I played drums and the guitar and he played the bass on it. I think I may have played bass on a track or two, but I did all the drums and it was really fun too, you know? Because yeah. like, okay, I'm not like the world's best drummer, but I can get a good groove going and within, if I play for two minutes, you're definitely going to find four bars you can use somewhere in there, you know? Yeah, you said you were doing that, but then I ran into you at the airport and you, you seemed to, you thought maybe you got maybe five or six bars, I think yeah, you were yeah, saying. Yeah, 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 I did okay. It was okay, <laughs> man. A lot of it was okay. I was pretty pleased with it, but I'm much better now. <laughs> what about some of these other albums you've done with like Scott Amendola and stuff like like the cars stuff like yeah yeah can you show us an example sure of a cars i mean we tune? just yeah we just Car- took some of that music and just did our own like hands are cold you know like the good times roll yeah. that sounds like steely dan Shit like that, you know. That's funny. That's beautiful. The nightlife baby. Let me hear a little more of that. Yeah, isn't that? Uh. stuff like that but exactly good song is a good yeah. song is a, a good, good song. song is a good song it doesn't matter what it is absolutely yeah. man wherever it comes from it's good let me ask you about any other gear stuff that we want to cover like, sure. who makes your strings these are a daddario and tell me about the low bass strings you have they're three. like the they're the like... yeah you know for years the only um nylon tape wound strings i think a few companies made them labella made good ones um, and, but they're really ex- were expensive. Um, and then the others I never really liked. And Fenders were okay. I used those when I first started. But um, then Dario started doing these nylon tape wounds, and I was like, boom, they're good. Yeah. The tape is nylon, and then inside, so. basically, like yeah, inside is just like a regular set uh you know you got to move the magnet field exactly magnetic field yeah and the thing that moves the magnetic field apparently predominantly is the core right that's okay, the thing right. that actually moves yeah. it the winds really don't which is why like when you have a guitar with a wound g-string it's so weak because that core is just like little dinky you know interesting okay um so yeah but these man I, I went away from them for a few years. I was just using regular old, like the cheapest kind of their strings. They make the the what are they the the nickel wound kind of bass strings, right. everyday bass. And then I just I was kind of like, man, uh, there's something I like about that. 
You know? Yeah. It's like got that kind of organ thing. Uh, almost like Latin bass thing, baby bass thing. Yeah, it's got yeah. a warm sound. It's like a mixture of a electric bass, upright bass, and an organ yeah. pedal bass. You know what I mean? And if, if you're doing stuff like... I tried to do something with my pinky finger. I should have done it with my third finger. That's why I had <laughs> it's, it's falling off, man, eventually. Man, I can't wait for this blues record you're doing. Hey, do you, you know, one one lick I stole from you is, I don't even know what it was, but it was the coolest thing you used to always do with Michael Franti, and then I realized oh, it was the horn part and the bass line of I Wish by Stevie oh, Wonder. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's you remember so that? funny. Uh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was, but I don't know if I, if I can... Can I do that? It says this isn't D flat for me. I moved it to G when I do it. I'm not going to try to. Uh. Something like that, right? And, and Franti would be doing his, you know, spoken yeah, word, spoken rap on word the top. Thing. You guys yeah, would, totally. You guys got well, pretty that was huge. A long time ago. Well, he got really huge. I yeah, mean, I well. definitely, I quit that group right when it was like at its height. I just, it was not a music. Those guys were, I yeah, love those guys. You guys were guys. like opening for U2 we or were whatever. On, yeah, dude, and we I was opened like, for Charlie, U2. Charlie, you're crazy. You're quitting now? I know. That's what everyone told me. But you know what? I just couldn't. Well, now I understand. I love those guys. I mean, they're great people. And um, I just hung with Rano recently and just, it was great to see him and, you know, to catch up. Uh, and Simone, I know on, uh, you know, he lives in Australia. He's married to an Australian woman, so he's down there now. And we'll communicate on Facebook occasionally. Uh, but, uh, you know, they just weren't music guys. And they were more coming out of the kind of poetry, dance world. Uh, and I just was young and I really was like, kind of like, I just wanted to hear Wes Montgomery and John Coltrane. I didn't, I wasn't interested in any of that stuff. And the funny thing was, is now a lot of that music, like we, we would open for bands and tour with bands like, you know, um, Gangstar and the Freestyle Fellowship and, and, uh, Public Enemy and, and Arrested Development and, and it, like I, I was just like then I was like this sucks I these guys suck this is I'm t I just need to go I need to shed I need to go back to the, my hotel room which I shared with, with two other people and 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 learn some more music this isn't music because but you know later on I'm like wow actually those guys are really good and I remember then thinking wow DJ Premier is really a musician like this is really good you know and uh, and now it's like my son and his friends are you what you are what with those guys? oh my god it's incredible you know it's like yeah yeah they were good you know but it just was I just had to now you gotta sit in with some of them yeah that'd be nice you know because I just just to impress your kid yeah exactly exactly uh, that's but, what Huey Lewis did with uh, 
Humphreys McGee. Oh, he did? <laughs> He's not really into them, but his kid was into them. So, so he sat in with them? They're like, yeah, he came and sat in with us because his kid likes us. Oh, that's so funny. That's awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off. That's so fantastic. He's a good dude, Yui Lewis. What were you saying? So you're talking about how you play open for a gang star and oh, yeah, public yeah, enemy yeah. and stuff? Or? Yeah, right. Oh, because we were talking about uh, hypocrisy opening for you too, and all that. Yeah. And, and yeah, you know what it was? Is like those guys, they were just great people and in their in their own right they had a real vision artistically but musically it was just for me i really needed to grow a lot more and and i just they were not music people you know and so i really need to i needed to make a move so i basically quit that thing when it was mid success you know uh but it was i knew i was doing the right thing for me you know and i've always made moves like that and you know, economically, I've never made these moves predicated on <laughs> economics, unfortunately, but always predicated on music. And and uh, for the most part, it's it's been okay, you know. And your son was pretty impressed by some of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Because he's like, oh, wow, yeah, those guys are good, you know. Now I just got to finally meet your son, which is amazing how, you know, time flies. He's 15 uh, yeah, now. Yeah, right. My daughter's 13. Yeah, it's it does fly. And he's like, seems to be as devoted to baseball uh, almost as you were to guitar. What do you tell him about how to pursue it and go for it? And you know, get- yeah, because ultimately, I mean, I know the game, you know, but I was a terrible baseball player and, and I just do what, you know, I just, all I try to do is just, okay, look, I don't, I know how to practice. I know how to put in a good day's vigilant kind of practice, being diligent about it. And you, I'm sure you can do the same thing with baseball. So figure it out, you know, early on. And he just did. And he's got a really good work ethic and he works at it, you know. You know, I've always I've always wanted to be someone who could be a great practicer. I've known many guitarists and musicians who seem like they're able to shed and to right. put that what it's probably too late for me, but Yeah, <laughs> get out of here. To man. actually be changed and actually become a true practicer. But what advice do you have someone as far as building a practice routine? Or you you were always so disciplined, I remember. Well, I always had something I wanted to do. I always had music that I couldn't play, that I wanted to learn how to play. There was always something that you know, I, I mean, I'm not the guy who's you're going to be like, oh, yes, play me this scale with these and this. I'm just going to, you know, just like, well, I find a, the problem is I can't play something that I hear. And the solution is working to figure out a way to play it, you know, and that's the fun part. Right. And and uh, so to, for me, it's just it's never a chore. It's always total excitement and all well, I always did that I always like there's something I gotta learn but you seem like you've been really good like we're talking about the sports car model where everything's really bolted down and you get that solid feeling like yeah. you're really good at the details well I mean but I'm not a detail oriented person in my playing you know I try to have it be much more broad strokes I from the ground up like let hopefully the groove is there and and hopefully I'm mostly in tune and and then I just take it from there, you know. Well, definitely with the groove. Or you just mentioned yeah, the yeah. groove word, like spending a whole day working on the and of four. I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I'll spend months and years working One on that. One day I realized that every time I play the and of four, I kind of rush it, or it's not really... always. That's a guitar thing. Always, yeah. Because yeah. you're afraid you're not going to be able to play all your shit soon enough. <laughs> and there are so many songs that just yeah. they change right at that moment, or yeah. where the chord shifts right then. Yeah, I mean, you know, like. I just realized, like, man, okay, so, you know, especially, you know, if you're just, let's say you're just playing something like that's just like. Mm-hmm. 
so even. You know what, and that's the ID. You gotta wait, and the other thing is always like being Bay Area people, East Bay people especially, even if you don't know it, the way we came up was with this real, our sound is coming from that funk background. And the real 16th note kind of funk where, you know, you if you're not speeding up a little bit, something's missing. You feel like there's something missing from it. So, you know... Tower to, of Power kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, you know... You know what I mean? So it's always like, if you're not doing That's that... That's not possible, by the way. But anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> But, you know, if you're not speeding it up, you always feel like, oh, wait a minute, man. Something's not right. And, um, you know, I mean, if you listen to, you know, a drummer like Steve Jordan, who people say, oh, you know, he's just so metronomic. Yeah, he is that. But but also there is a flow. To, is he one to, of the musicians that John Mayer stole from you? No. Oh, my <laughs> God. He luckily made an introduction from me. He's so fantastic. Oh, okay. But, you know, you, you, you have... Um, you know, like take take like jazz drummers, like somebody who's like, you know, Max Roach, who's like known for all of this technical prowess. Yeah, well, there's that. There's just an incredible command and mastery, but there's a flow to what he does. You know what I mean? And that ride symbol, and it just it feels so good, even though something might be speeding up a little bit. I mean, there's this one record uh, with Kenny Garrett with Brian Blade on it, and they really speed up like a lot. But it feels good. It's okay. It makes sense. You know what I mean? And creatively, there's just so much. The flow is there. It's just happening. It's like... But does it drive you nuts to hear some of this click track? The click track has never been more prevalent, or I call it the grid, because everything's to the grid and Pro Tools. Does it drive you you nuts to hear rock and pop like it has no flex to it whatsoever? Yeah, it has no flex, and it doesn't have... Like, for instance, like I play with like Matt Chamberlain, who's a friend and a fantastic musician, and he he does that, but he's able to inject musicality. He's always the best thing on every record. You hear a lot of these pop records like, why does it sound good? Oh, it's because of him. You know, because, yes, he can go in there and give them what they want in terms of, you know, playing. But he interjects as much good feeling and groove and flow a creative flow as you can into that world, you know? And then when you play not with him in that world, like we did a couple duo gigs and his improvisation thing was just off the chain. Like, wow, you know, like incredible. And, you know, there's there's that, and you're absolutely right. Like, but I think you should be able to play like that, you know, just as a thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You should uh, not be, you should at least aspire to be able to play like that. But, you know, it's... You it's, play like adding some flair to a click or... Both worlds. But both. You're both. Play to yeah. the click. Like, re- you should be really be able to play to the click. But I yeah. think if you're a person and you're just playing, what what I find is really I don't like is playing with other people to a click. I'd rather just play with a drummer. You know what I right. mean? Yeah. Um, or it, playing to a click I love. If it's if I'm just playing on a track, I'm layering, I'm playing, boom, that's no problem. But when I'm playing with other people... It's like I want to feel those little tiny things that happen, you know. Um, but but it's also cool oh, to yeah, play. Well, I love the click. The click is your friend, really. It just depends a, yeah. how you deal how you deal with it, you know. I mean, no, there's a place for everything. It's just yeah. that it's just ubiquitous now. Everything right. is a right. click. I saw a, 
see country artists and I can hear the click through the drummer's headphones not literally but yeah yeah you I, can the, the, the feel of it dun, 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 dun. yeah the yeah the fill is so even there's no yeah. lean to it there's no it erases it erases regionality in people's playing you know what I mean it Dude. takes away the, the person a lot of person I don't mean this is a cop out like don't play good time don't blah blah blah, yeah. blah 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 but you know there's this whole thing about like if you have a band and you have a sound you want to have that kind of agreement everyone agrees on whatever you know the groove might might be you know right um, I don't know it's interesting you listen to songs like you, the great funk track Lady Marmalade the original uh-huh. yeah yeah if you ever, if you let's Herman Ernest on, on the drums, it sounds the great. Great you, Herman Ernest, yeah. And if you hit, go to the end of the song and then click backwards, just like that, mm-hmm. it's like twenty clicks faster than the beginning, or maybe ten clicks. But no, okay. it's not that much faster. I'm it's maybe two or three, but but it's noticeable by. I'm going to say six. You think six? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of those things. Like if you listen to the the Headhunters, that that. Yeah. That thing is oh, yeah. speeds up like dramatically, but it they're doing they're all listening to each other. I mean, what I it don't feels what, good. yeah, it feels good. I don't I can't deal with any dragging. Nobody wants to hear dragging. But playing behind the beat is different than dragging. You know, it's very different kind of feel. You know, but yeah, it's you know you're right. It does it it gets monolithic. But it's also that you know a lot of it just is not a lot of good music coming out. You know, there's some really good songwriters like some of those big name people have really good songwriters behind them but once they get finished hitting all of the production and all the little little benchmarks they're trying to hit it just always kind of takes whatever was good out of the music to begin with kind of you know or what i would like right, to I hear know what you mean it's yeah. crafted crafted for a it's very specific you know I mean, they probably do focus groups for a lot of big artists like, e- just like exactly they would well they're putting all their apples in one you know basket they don't want to mess around you know focus group rock yeah focus yeah group. exactly yeah totally oh my god that's funny I've always appreciated how you had strong opinions about things. Like, <laughs> like I got. How how are, we, how are we doing with Girl from Ipanema? Oh, dude, I love it. It's <laughs> great. You've made progress. Have you? No, I have a story for have you. You sought therapy or something? How did you? Yeah. This friend of mine in um, Brazil, this great saxophone player, Leo Gontelman. I don't know if you, you've heard him. He's he's a, a large name in Brazil and a fantastic musician. He told me that. Um, he was doing a gig back in the day, like at the U.S. Embassy in Rio, with like you know he had a little bossa group, and uh, this guy came up, drunk American guy came up, he's playing "Girl from Ipanema," and he's like, "We actually are playing that right now. We're playing <laughs> Girl from Ipanema." He goes, "No, play it." He goes, "This is Girl from Ipanema. We're playing right now." Oh man. <laughs> Was, and he really was. He really was. They were in the middle of <laughs> the playing. Middle, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oh, my God. But, um, well, cool, man. I just can't thank you enough for... Uh, Dude, thank you. Great to reconnect. Yeah, so Charlie Hunter's new record, July 22nd, is called Everybody Has a Plan Until They Get Punched in the Mouth. I love some of the stuff that Charlie was saying in that interview, like the way he looks at music, the way, you know, ragtime was the funk of its time. That's so cool. And I love that Charlie's such a positive person, too. Like when he says music culture 
is convergent, not divergent. It's like the opposite of the Big Bang. Everything's coming together. Gotta love it. Go check out Charlie Hunter on tour. You can see him online, charliehunter.com. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Pete Thorne and all his crazy tales of playing with Don Henley, Melissa Etheridge, all of that stuff. Chris Cornell, touring the world, playing some cool gear. What else? Just want to thank Zoom for the H6 recorder that I can take on helicopters and trains to go visit and interview people like Charlie Hunter. How cool is all that? I will put pictures up on the No Guitar Is Safe Facebook hang. That little page there is growing, and I'll put up all kinds of stuff from, uh, like, showing Charlie's guitars and latest videos and all that good stuff. Come say hello. Visit us on the uh, iTunes store and uh, write a little nice review, I guess. I guess that's good for us, so every little thing helps. Thanks to Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. And until next time, keep it alive till you're 95.